Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. Ephesians 2, 4. Last week I was greatly encouraged by a sermon that I, I listened to. It was a short sermon, just I think 16 minutes long. And I didn't learn anything that I didn't know before. It's not as though I hadn't heard of the truths that were being imparted to me um, through the word and, and through the teacher. But I, I came away just revived and, and more alive to God. My faith was, was stronger. My, my trust in him was deeper because I was reminded about the truth that dwells in God's word. He's sure he's the guarantee. And when we gather together, my prayer for you is, is that you would come away with a a stronger faith, a, a deeper hope in the Lord, that, that through the word of God and through the teaching of the word of God, that, that he would awaken you. I know that he wants to do that work in you. I know that he wants to grow you and change you. But I so often need a quickening in God. I, I do know him, and I know I'm saved. I know I'm going to heaven. Yet I so often need to be stirred up. I need to be reminded of the riches of the mercy that God has shown towards me. I'll never be able to completely discover all of the grace that he has poured out upon us. I'll never be able to fathom it or to get to the bottom of it. His love is, is amazing. It's indescribable. And when we come into his word as he speaks to us by his spirit through it, I pray that you'd be open to that quickening and to that, that grounding in his word of God. It really is wonderful. It's needed. It's, it's part of our walk with him. And yes, be in the word personally. Study it for yourself. Don't just listen to talking heads and commentaries and quotes. And Get into the word of God for yourself. Memorize it. Um, look for cross-references. But I hope that this day you are, are greatly encouraged. And I also pray that this day, if you have not received the greatest gift ever, that today would be the day of reception that today would be the day of salvation for you. And if, you're, if you are a believer, today, right now, even pray with me. Um, for those who have heard or who will be hearing, but they haven't believed upon the name of Jesus. They're, they're looking in and, and they're seeing something. They're seeing in us, hopefully. They're seeing in the word truth, but they haven't yet reached out and received the gift by faith. Today, the word of God describes the gift of God towards us that he gave through Jesus. And it's the best gift ever, by far and away. So if you're a believer, please don't be bored with the good news, with the gospel. Instead, a purpose in your heart to, to pray for the lost, just as we do every day. I know you have somebody in your life who you love dearly, who isn't saved. I know that you have somebody in your life and you love them a lot. And if they were to die, you would not be sure that you would see them in heaven. And so wouldn't you want other believers to, to be praying for the person that you love so much? I sure would. And they're among us today. They're among us even now. They're, they're hearing even now the goodness of God. Be praying for them the same way that you would pray for that person that you love so much, that God would open up their eyes that the scales would come off, that their hearts wouldn't be calloused anymore, that they would be soft, that they would be alive instead of dead spiritually. Ephesians chapter 
2 verse 4 says this, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I want you to see, first of all, that God displays his trophy testimonies. The phrase toward us, do you see it there towards the end of verse 7? Toward us. Toward us is Paul. Toward us is Paul and the Ephesian church. Toward us is Paul and the church at his time as a whole. When he says us, that's who he means. You and I are a part of what is written earlier there in verse 7. Ages to come. So we have the previous church, the first church, and it shows God's grace to the next age and to the age to come. Isn't that what the Bible is telling me and you? That that original outpouring of the Spirit, when the Spirit came and was given to the church, that people were saved, Paul was saved, the Ephesians were saved, churches were established, the church at large was birthed. And then in the ages to come, people would look back and see the mercy of God on those people's lives, and it would be a testimony to them. Those people would be trophy testimonies to the grace of God. We are to say, because we are the ages to come, look at Paul. He hated Christians. He arrested them, and he voted to put them to death. It was his life's mission prior to being saved to put Christians down, to round them up like animals, and to see them be executed for their faith in Jesus Christ. But God, beginning of verse 4, removed the scales from Paul's eyes, showed to him his mercy, showed to him the riches of his grace, and Paul was saved. And he went from being one who hated Christians to one that loved them. He went from one who hated God to one who loved God. We're the ages to come. And we're to look at that testimony in Paul and say, wow, look at what God did in his life. How about the Ephesians? They were a people who were entrenched in demonic magic. They were a people, and you can read about this in Acts 19. They were a society, they were a city that was really in to the darkness of Satan and his realm. But God showed his mercy to them. They stepped into the light. We learn that they received and that they believed that they confessed the name of Jesus. And then they made a big pile of all of these books that were filled with incantations and they lit it on fire. They ignited their incantation. They burned all of their demonic magic books. What a testimony to the light of Christ. What a testimony to the grace of God. Because when they were saved, their lives changed drastically. That's a testimony to the ages to come, isn't it? Look at what God did in the lives of the, of the Ephesians. 
They were living according to the prince of the power of the air. But now they're living according to the footsteps of Jesus Christ. We learn in Acts 19, when we read about the Ephesians, that the word of God grew mightily and prevailed. That's what it means to have God's word prevail. Saved souls, changed lives. The Ephesians were also a part of a society that was steeped in sexual immorality. They built a huge temple to the sexual, sexually immoral goddess of Diana, right in the middle of their city. And they had these little sexual emblems, little statues that represented their sensual pleasures, and they were given over to darkness. Not solid truth, but over to the darkness of Satan. They lived in the society. They practiced this kind of lifestyle. That's the way they worshiped, is through their immoral sex. But then what happened? God revealed his mercy to them. They believed upon his name. They accepted the Lord Jesus Christ. And they turned to him. Their lives changed so drastically that, that now those who were running that lucrative, immoral business were really starting to feel the hurt. You see, they had big business based on this immorality, a lot like Hollywood today, a lot like the porn industry today. They were making bank because they were pulling people into their immorality. They were pulling people into their depravity. It was the bottom line for them. They liked their business. It made them rich. But when people got saved in Ephesus, so many people came to Christ and turned away from the immoral lifestyle that their business started to suffer. Demetrius was a maker of sensual statues. And this is what he said in Acts 19, verse 26. Not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So this trade of ours is in danger of falling into disrepute. Look, this Paul is going all around the world, and he's telling people that our God of sex is not the real God. And people are listening to him and they're following him. And now our business is suffering because of it. That's a trophy of grace, isn't it? That God changed the Ephesian lives that much. God displays his trophies of grace, these testimonies. Is that the church today putting a noticeable dent in the porn industry, in the bloodthirsty violence industry? The church at Ephesus was doing just that. Now they were alive instead of dead. Now they were on the straight and narrow instead of on the course of this world. Now they were children of mercy instead of children of wrath. What exceeding riches of grace and mercy. That impacted their whole society so that the next generation could see God, so that they could see and experience the mercy of God Almighty. But not just for the next generation, but for the generation after that and after that. This is a psalm that's wonderful to memorize. It's from Psalm 145, 4. One generation shall praise thy works to another and declare thy mighty acts. You see what the Bible is saying? One generation of people is a trophy testimony of the work of God. And they declare the goodness of God to the next generation and saying, he can be for you who he is for me. 
We are to be that display. Our lives are to declare the richness of God's mercy. Now, our testimony should exalt the Lord. Many seek self-exaltation through their testimony. What I mean is so many people are so caught up in their own story that they're forgetting that people are supposed to walk away and say, but God, not but them or but me or but you. They're supposed to come away from our lives seeing that this is God who did this work in this life. This salvation is from him, not, not from a mere person. We're not the source of the grace. He's the source of the grace. His grace is amazing. Age to age, let it shine. Let it be apparent. God displays his trophy testimonies, and he did it through Paul and the Ephesians, and he will do it through the saved today. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Secondly, God has removed human boasting. Personal boasting is tacky. Personal boasting is a turnoff. Let me just hint, hint, hint to you how good I am, how great I am, how smart I am, how my family is so kind and so hardworking, so talented. And let me be really subtle about how often I talk about myself and those who are mine. Boasting is distasteful, isn't it? Even to those who don't yet know God, even to those who don't walk according to his ways, bragging is not really an attractive feature in a person's life, is it? One of my sister's is a master at baiting braggarts. She, she, it's one of the things she likes to do, just to try to show a person what a boaster they really, really are. She's quite skilled at getting people to continue to boast. She'll find a boaster and just feed him. And sometimes I think they're just gonna inflate, 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 and then just <laughs> pop all over the place. Years ago, this man started telling Holly, my sister, how smart he was, how hardworking he was, how he could figure things out at work that nobody else could figure out, that he was basically a genius. And this was all according to him, of course. And she tried to change the subject, but he would promptly change it right back to himself again. Every single time, it would just be more about him. All roads led to him. And finally, she said to him, this is notorious in our family, Tell me about another time you saved the day. <laughs> and he did. <laughs> he didn't even understand the sarcasm. He just obliged. He just kept going with who he was, who he thought he was, how, how much smarter, how much stronger, how much better, how much more intelligent. I know that's entertainment at the expense of, of the bragger, and her tears were welling up in her eyes. And if you know my sister, when she laughs really hard, she starts to cry. And she's, she wants to just burst into laughter, and he still doesn't know that she's messing with him. Boasting. It's, it's ugly, isn't it? Proverbs 27.2, let, let another man praise you and not your own mouth. One version says, let another man's lips praise you. So if there's something to be said good about you or about me, let it be said by somebody else. That's what the Bible says. 
Don't be spending your time building yourself up. Now, bragging is even more deplorable when a person is bragging as though they worked their way to their own spiritual standing. Because that's what this verse 9 is talking about, isn't it? It's bad to brag about your works in general, but if we say that it's the basis for our acceptance by God, that's actually blasphemy. For a person to say, well, I'm this way with God. God doesn't receive me because of what I've done, because of my works, because of my deeds. Ephesians 2, 9 tells us one of the reasons why we are not saved by good works. Do you see it right there? Because if we were saved by good works, we would brag about it. The glory would go to us. Isn't that so reasonable? To know that if we had done even a fraction of the work of redemption, we would talk about what we had done. We'd swap stories. We'd say, so how did you get into heaven? Let me tell you about how I got into heaven. Let me tell you why I'm going. You can tell me while, while you're going. You're going to heaven for the same reason that I'm going to heaven. And it's because of the work of Jesus Christ. If you're going there with us, we're all going because of the gift of grace. We're all going because of his love. None of us will be in the eternal by and by with the Lord based on one bit of work that we have done. Otherwise, we would boast. That would be glory to man, not glory to God. That's not the kingdom of God, is it? So tell me about another time you saved the day. I didn't save the day. Jesus did. In fact, he saved me for all eternity. God has removed human boasting. He's removed that which is not just distasteful, but that which is blasphemous because he alone has made the way for you and I to go from death to life, to go from condemnation to forgiveness, to go from hell to heaven. What a destiny difference. And it's all because of God's grace. Verse eight tells us it's by grace through faith. It's not that of yourselves. Could it get any clearer? I don't think it could. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God. Third point, God's grace is unmerited favor. It is good for us to be able to define biblical terminology. Grace is often called God's unmerited favor. First of all, it is from God, isn't it? But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. The gift of grace is from the Lord. Every good and perfect gift is from him. This gift of grace is from God alone. It is salvation imparted from the hand of God. So since no one can be saved by their works, how can we be saved? By receiving the gift of grace, by receiving eternal life. God's unmerited favor we have not merited grace in any way. We did not earn it. We cannot earn it. Grace is not an award. Grace is not a paycheck. Grace is no mere man's accolade. If we think we deserve grace, we are terribly mistaken. It is a free gift given to us, unmerited. In fact, we do not deserve to have what we do. God's unmerited favor when I say favor, I don't mean like doing somebody a favor. 
I mean, that's a nice thing to do sometimes. But this favor means perfect standing with God. It means perfect relationship with God. It's not just doing something nice for somebody. This means that God has brought us in to right relationship with him. The relationship is perfect. It's the only perfect relationship you have because it is with God Almighty. It is with the holy God of this universe. You're not making it perfect. He is. He's always there. His door is always open to you. It is acceptance moment by moment, a pure relationship that is on the path to heaven. That's favor, isn't it? That favor is not just as subjects of the king, but it, has, it is as children of the father, like a child that can come to his dad, like a child that has open access to come to his dad, no matter how famous, no matter how rich, no matter how lofty others might think his father is, that's his father, that's her father. She can go to him. Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This favor is you and I as believers walking with God, coming right into his very presence and knowing that he has gone to prepare a place for us. This favor is God seeing us as a loving groom sees his bride at the back of the aisle, dressed in white, pure, holy, perfect. That is the favor of God. Revelation 19, seven, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. You and I in right relationship with God headed for heaven. That's the kind of favor that I'm talking about. And it's a favor for this life, but it's not just a favor for this life. It's eternal because we're redeemed. We're not given the judgment that we deserve. We're given heaven that we should not perish, but have everlasting life. So if you know you need this grace, come and get it. A gift can be offered to you, but it's not yours until you receive it. It can be extended to you, but you have to reach out and make it your own in order for it to benefit you, right? How do you receive this gift of grace? For by grace you have been saved through faith. You receive it by putting your faith in Jesus. Not by works, because you would boast, but by saying, Jesus, I believe in you as my Lord. My life belongs to you. You purchased my life on the cross. Placing faith in the Lord is how you receive the great gift of grace. That you would not be condemned. Jesus hung on that cross so that you could receive by faith this riches, these, these riches of grace. Now the Bible's so clear regarding the grace of God, yet people have tried and have botched it up for just centuries, haven't they? The Bible says there's no room for personal boasting. The simplicity of the gift somehow evades us because it doesn't appeal to our sense of pride. It doesn't appeal to our accomplishments. 
His grace is all about how good he is, and it's not about how, how good we are. And it's hard for us to connect with that sometimes, isn't it? But if you are to receive this great grace, you must know that it will come to you by faith in him. You don't need to have a boatload of faith. It can be just a little teeny bit. Jesus said, if you have the faith of a mustard seed. Now you must believe that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. The Bible's clear about that. But if you're struggling with doubt, still come and say to the Lord in your prayer, I believe, help my unbelief. Tell him, my life is yours, but there's a lot of things that I sure don't have figured out. Teach me, Lord. He will save you and he'll set you on a path to heaven. Will you receive the gift today? I'm, I'm asking you. Because it's extended to you by the nail-scarred hands of Jesus. It cost him everything to provide this gift to you. Romans 5, 8, it's, but God demonstrates. That means God shows his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While I was still living separate from the Lord, sinning it up, blind, that's when Jesus gave his life for me. And the same is true of you. He hung on a cross. There's another way we can understand grace, and it's in keeping with what we've already learned. We can turn it into an acronym, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. What was so expensive? Jesus's life on the cross. That's the expense. Your salvation was really, really costly free for you to receive, but very expensive. The expense of Jesus giving his life for you. Let this be the day of your acceptance. I know, according to his word, he has wanted to accept you all along. Confess Jesus as Lord and be saved. Step into life. That's the bottom line. And you will find that from before the foundations of the world, he predestined that for you. And Christians, let us rejoice in the grace of God. Let us be amazed by grace. Let that not just be a saying where we say, oh, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Let us truly say, I cannot fathom why the God of this universe would give his life for me, but I'm gonna receive it. I cannot understand this indescribable gift completely, but I will take what I can understand. And I'm far from the brightest brain, but after years and years of study in the Bible, I have never known a greater truth than the grace of God. All of the history, all of the prophecy, none of it is greater than the grace of God. I've never found a deeper doctrine than the grace of God. And for my reasons to praise him, it's still at the top of my list. Lord, you saved me. And there in the midst of the throne, there stood a lamb as though it had been slain. That's the picture of heaven, if you read Revelation 5. Jesus there in the middle receiving worship because he is the lamb who was slain for you. He's the sacrifice that was given for your sins. So you and I are going to be praising Jesus in heaven because of his grace. Yes, he is holy, and we praise him for his perfect holy character. 
but he did not keep his holiness to himself. He hung his holiness on a tree so that you could be forgiven. What if God had stayed perfect in his holiness far away from us? He'd still be worthy of praise and honor, but to think that he gave his perfection, he demonstrated his love by laying down his life. That's amazing grace. He became sin for you. He became sin for me. Let us be glad and rejoice. Let us give him thanks for this great grace. So this third point, God's grace is unmerited favor. That's what it is. Verse 10. For we are, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Fourthly, fourth point, you might say, God prepared beforehand our good works. Now, even though we're not saved by good works, our good works were prepared beforehand by God for us to do. That's what verse 10 is saying, isn't it? And chapter one taught us that we are predestined by God before the foundations of the world to be saved. But now we learn that he also pre-prepared the good works that we would do. So he pre-prepared your justification and he also pre-prepared your sanctification. The sanctification is that ongoing process of being set apart for him. So good works are an illustration of what God has already planned for your life. He's already mapped it out. He's already charted out the good works for his glory that you will do. Romans 8, 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So he predestined that you would be more like Jesus, that you would change to live and to act and to think more like Jesus does. That's what the word means by being conformed to Christ. That's all in the plan of God for you beforehand, from the beginning to the end. I, I should say from before your beginning into the never ending, God knows your life in him, your salvation mapped out and your deeds mapped out for you to do. Now this word workmanship is a famous Greek word and I like it because it sounds like an English word and that helps me a lot. It's poema. And it's the same word that we get our word for poem. So you are God's poem. Now, when I, we're going to learn later on that we are the building of God, that he puts us together like a building, that we're living stones. And as the church, each person is like a rock. But this portion of scripture is focusing on the truth that you are God's poema. So you might think of your life in terms of a blueprint, especially if you're a builder. And if you're a builder, you're, you're into efficiency. You're into things being organized and structural, right? But a poem's not like that. A poem is an expression of the artist, isn't it? I think more in terms of songs because I like to write songs more than just poems. I want the poem to have music that goes with it. But to consider that God just, he's not just after efficiency and organization. He doesn't just hand out this blueprint to you that just works, workmanship. But you're literally an expression of his creativity in your good works. That's amazing to me to think of it like 
an artist who's making a portrait. And in her mind, she knows what she wants it to look like, right? If you're an artist, you have that picture in your mind. If you're a songwriter or you write lyrics, you write poems, you know when it's not there yet. And you write and you're like, nah, that's not it. Because there's a final product that you're looking for. And then when you get it where it should be, you say, yeah, that, that's, that's where it should be. That's your life through Jesus, the artist. And he's a good artist. He's a great artist. Expressing his good through you. That's almost too much for me to fathom. Because my good works are not so good. And to think that they're an expression of God's glory and he sees the finished product, he knows where I'm going and he's doing the shading and he's doing the marketing and he's doing the coloring and it is beautiful to him. That's the good pleasure, isn't it? Because an artist will not release the poem or the painting until they're happy with it. Isn't that true? I think about some of these Renaissance painters, artists as they dig up their stuff Today, they would be like, oh, no, nobody was supposed to see that. And people are spending thousands and thousands of dollars just to get like a Rembrandt. That's, did you see that? They found another Rembrandt a couple of weeks ago. You guys are like, who cares? And it, it wasn't the greatest. It wasn't the greatest Rembrandt. That was for sure. But it still was a Rembrandt. They confirmed like, whoa. It's about the artist, right? Here is the Lord God taking good pleasure in you, his child. And your works are his poema, his expression of creativity to shine light to this world. Not just functional or efficient like that blueprint. Because you and I can get discouraged regarding our deeds and think, I don't know if I can change. I've tried that before. I don't know if I've got it in me. Well, that's the wrong focus because it's I-I, isn't it? But as God's child saved by grace, he's already charted your growth in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. He's already put before you those things that he has destined for you to do. That brings me encouragement. Those deeds are not in my power. Those deeds are not in your power, but in the power of the spirit prepared by the hand of God for his good pleasure. If you don't believe me about this good pleasure thing, listen to Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. To save you, that was his good pleasure. He took great delight in bringing you in. But he also takes great delight in the work that he is doing through you. Because it's an expression of your love towards God. If you love me, keep my commandments, Jesus said. So then we can show the unbelieving, we can show the world, I love the Lord and my life has changed and I've got good works. If you see anything good in me, it's because Jesus loved me first. It's him pouring his power, his creativity, his life, his predetermined goodness through my life. Gospel was in the center. The growth towards the end, the justification in the middle, the sanctification at the end. With that said, if you are unsaved, I don't want you to forget the truth that you heard today. It's no less true just because you put it out of your mind. 
Have you ever received an envelope, maybe a bill, and you don't open it because you don't want to see it? You don't want to deal with it. You don't want to pay it. It's no less real just because you don't open it. Have you ever seen a response from somebody in your email box and you're dreading reading it? It's already been written. You see that somebody has texted you, you read the first couple of lines, you're like, no, I'm not going to look. It's still true. It's still there. All the more so it is true of the grace of God. The grace of God is still extended to you. It's still just as true even if you put it out of your mind and think that somehow you can earn your way. It's still just as true. God's love is still there. It's still on the table. But you got to open it. And, and I know it can be painful because it's confessing our sins to him. It's telling him that we're not the center of the universe. But you already know that. And come to him and say, Lord, you're my God. You're my king. Nobody else. Let's worship him in light of that great grace. Lord God, we stand amazed again. We've stand amazed, we stood amazed many other times and said that we cannot fathom the exceeding riches of grace that you've shown towards us. But Lord, we come again and we, we tell you thank you and we pray that your grace would overflow from our lives, that we would not just keep it to ourselves, that we wouldn't just think that because we've heard it, we're good to go, Lord, but I pray that we would receive it and spread it, Lord. As we lift our songs to you and worship, may you be pleased with what you see. May we understand that we are your workmanship, created by you and through you for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.